Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray in this moment that your word will do exactly that. That as we seek to live out a redeemed life, a restored life, a transformed life, that your very word will guide us, will provide the light for us to know where we need to walk, and will provide the guidance so that we can know how to get there. We pray that, Lord, we would not be ignorant or blind or in the dark leaving here today, but that as we open your word, we will have light for our lives unto your glory. We pray that in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. The words that Jesus declared help us understand the works that Jesus displayed. The words that Jesus declared help us understand the works that Jesus displayed. Without the declarations of Jesus, we cannot rightly understand the deeds of Jesus. Without the the words of Jesus, we cannot rightly understand the works of Jesus. Without the identity of Jesus, we cannot understand the accomplishment of Jesus. I hope you can make that connection first and foremost this morning. Is that we know the greatness of the work of Christ because of the depth and the volume of the words of Christ when he lived here on this earth. And so we've been studying the Gospel of John for months. I don't know how many, but many. And we've been answering this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And from chapter 1 through chapter 5, we've come to understand that Jesus is the Word, the the Lamb of God, the temple. He's the, the, the discerner. He is the teacher, the Savior. He's the bridegroom for, for the bride. And then in chapter to six, we, we began to see Jesus make these statements. And, and, and they're called the I am statements because he just clearly and boldly and definitively declares this is who he is. In chapter six, verse 35, he first says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pause for a moment and realize that because Jesus is the bread of life, then you and I can experience satisfaction and delight every day of our lives. He goes on to say in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, I'm sorry, whoever comes to me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as I prayed prayed the prayer of illumination, because Jesus is the light of, of the world, then we can have illumination and direction and clarity in the way that we live. And the fact is, is that people in the world, without the light of the world, they're confused, they're in the dark, and they really don't know up from down. And because we have Christ, we can have the light that we need. 
again in chapter 8, the Jews are, are actually approaching him and, and they're, they're, they're not just ridiculing him, they're pressing at him and they're accusing him. And Jesus ultimately says, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. And they're like, what are you talking about? Abraham seeing your day. I mean, you're not, you're not even yet 50 years old. How, how, how would you know that? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, this is the thing. Because Jesus is the great I am, you and I can worship him. We can not only look at him as a great example and a great teacher and, and, and a great um, model of sacrifice, but we can look at Jesus and we can bow down to him and we can say, hallelujah, glory to God, because he is God. He is the great I am. In chapter 10, he's teaching again. And listen to what he says. He says, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and he'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I, I know this is basic Christianity 101. But church, we need to realize and rejoice in the fact that because Jesus is the door, we can enter into eternal life. Without him being the door, we have no entrance. And without no entrance, the only kind of life that we would have is a living death. Praise his name. He goes on to teach us in chapter 11, or in chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And now the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, he says. He, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep. He, he flees. The wolf snatches him up and scatters them. But he says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Because he's a good shepherd, you and I can rest in his sacrifice for us. He has laid down his life. He has extended his arms. He has been nailed. He has been put with that crown of thorns. And he has been persecuted and murdered. And ultimately, he has been condemned for us. And we can rest in that knowing that we don't have to be condemned and we don't have to experience condemnation because he is our good shepherd. When one of his friends had died and had been dead four days and Mary and Martha are all upset because it was their brother, Lazarus, who had died. And, and Mary and Martha, they end up having a conversation with him and ultimately Jesus says, now wait a minute. You need to realize I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Church, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, not only do we have physical resurrection, we have spiritual resurrection. And the life that we live now can be a resurrected life, a full life, an abundant life, a joyful life, a real life because of his accomplishment for us as the resurrection. 
And then in chapter 14, which we read just a few weeks ago, the disciples are in the upper room. Jesus is not only teaching them, he's, he's just served them. He's gotten down on his hands and feet and washed their feet. And, and, and then they're troubled because of some of the words that he's saying, like he's going to be leaving them and, and, and he's going to depart. And they're anxious about what is about to happen as he's already foretold um, his persecution and his death. And they're scared. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself. And that where I am, you can be also. And then Thomas says, when Jesus said, you know the way where I'm going. You know the way. And Thomas says, how can we know the way? And church, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And this is the beautiful thing about that statement. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you and I can have direction toward God. We can have delight in God. We can have knowledge of God. And we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, we can't have any of that. And so when I say that for us to understand the work of Jesus... We must have the words of Jesus. All of his work on our behalf actually takes shape and has meaning by the beautiful truth that he teaches us. Let us not resist his teaching, but let us press into it so that we can appreciate all that Jesus is and all that he has done and he will do. Now with that, if you haven't already turned to John chapter 15, please do so. John chapter 15. Because today, we're going to come to the final I am statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. Now it may be last, but it is certainly not least. And we'll set the context as we read the passage here. It's Thursday night. The Passover meal has been, has been celebrated by the uh, disciples and Jesus in the upper room, and Jesus has in fact washed their feet. Jesus has in fact told them that someone is going to betray him. Jesus has in fact dipped the morsel and had a little conversation in secret with Judas. Judas has in fact gotten up out of that room, walked out of it, and gone to the Jewish leaders in order to betray and hand Jesus over to them. That's just happened. Eleven disciples remain. And last week we saw in chapter 14, verses 15 through 31, that Jesus is the ultimate helper who teaches us this principle of, of this love-fueled obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to reside in us. And basically what he says is, I'm going to leave so that the Spirit can come and be inside of you. And with the Spirit inside of you, the Father and Son will be there as well. And we will make our home with you. We will dwell inside of you. And so with that, Jesus then states these words. And this is our text for today. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So I really have one purpose for this message this morning, and I've had one prayer for all of us, every person who is here, and that is for us to have an increasing amount of joy in Jesus and an increasing amount of fruit bearing for him. An increasing amount of joy in him and an increasing amount of fruit bearing for him. That's the goal. That's the plan. That's the prayer. And so Brothers and sisters, we just want to walk through this in, in, with really kind of three, three levels here of, of the message. The first one is just the picture, the, the vivid picture that Jesus paints. I believe that we will, we will understand and appreciate the teaching if we can understand and appreciate the picture. And so let's kind of let our minds go back to a first century vineyard. In ancient Israel, vineyard is is just a, a plantation of grapevines. In this case, it is just a a plethora of grapevines in order to make and produce grapes, which will ultimately produce wine, which will ultimately produce celebration. That that is what a vineyard is, and a vine dresser. This word here is really just farmer. In this sense, maybe even you could call him a, a gardener. A vine dresser is just a person who tends to the grapevines. One who, who looks at fruit bearing and non-fruit bearing and examines every vine and every branch so as to try to cultivate maximum fruit bearing in the vineyard. Now, in the picture that Jesus actually gives us, the vine dresser really has two roles. The vine dresser 
he, he prunes the fruitful branches. So he takes his knife and he takes his tools and he walks by and he, he actually prunes and cuts back and works on and provides room and space for these fruitful vines to grow. He sees these, these branches coming off of the, the, the main vine and he says, boy, that's a good one. I want to make sure that it grows and that it produces more and more fruit that it's already producing. So I'm going to prune it. I'm going to shape it up. I'm going to fashion it. Some of you who are gardeners understand this concept. And so what does the vine dresser do? He prunes fruitful branches so that each fruitful branch will bear more and more fruit. And eventually, the, the vineyard will flourish and grapes will be galore and ultimately wine will be produced. The second thing that he says that the vine dresser does is that he purges. He, he cuts, and he cuts fruitless branches. He looks at each branch, and the ones that obviously have no fruit, are bearing no fruit, show no signs of life, as if they are, as if they are not receiving the, the nutrients of the vine. He looks at that and says, there is really no productivity to this branch. There is no life in this branch. There is no hope for this branch. And so he cuts those branches off and throws them into the pile. That's what vine dressers do. Now, the other thing that we want to see is the, just the vine itself. The, the, the vine, just kind of in our concept with a tree, is like the trunk of the tree. The vine is the life-giving, nutrients-giving, nutrients-providing source for all the branches. In other words, you know, you can't have fruit without branches, and you can't have branches without the vine. And so he's painting this picture of this one branch that I'm sorry this one vine where all the branches come off of it and everything plays off of the vine itself okay I'm going to belabor the point just for another minute he clearly wants us to see in this vineyard that there are fruitful branches and there are unfruitful Branches. There are fruitless branches. And he wants us to see the difference between the two, and he wants us to understand that the end game, the result of the two, are different in the vineyard. Okay, so that, that's just really the picture. A vine dresser in the vineyard, tending to the vines and to the branches, identifying the fruitful ones and pruning them, identifying the fruitless ones and purging them, getting rid of them so that the vineyard can prosper, so that grapes can be grown, so that wine can be produced, so that the celebration can be had. That's the picture. All right, let's go now to the second part of the, the, the message. It's, it's the, the principles, the spiritual principles that Jesus is teaching here. And church, what is interesting about this particular picture that Jesus paints is that often when he tells stories and uses parables, he's teaching one spiritual message, one main message. And he's doing that here. But oftentimes we don't want to press parallels so that we look at the story of, say, the, the parable of the two sons, the prodigal son that it's often called, and we, 
we don't want to press too much and try to make a one-to-one correlation with everything that's going on in the story or the parable of the talents and make a one-to-one correlation with everything in the story so that every little part of the story has a spiritual connection and a spiritual parallel so that we, we understand the story that way. No, generally speaking, in parables, Jesus has a main thrust and we don't need to press every detail to equate to something in our, in our spiritual lives. But in this passage, Jesus clearly makes parallels He clearly makes a lot of them, and he wants us to see them. And I think that's very important. And so here's some of the spiritual principles and the connections we could even say in this passage. First of all, the vine dresser. Church, who is the ultimate vine dresser? The Father. Yes, the Father. Is that what you're going to say? The Father. Yes. God the Father is the vine dresser. He is the one who tends to the spiritual garden, the spiritual vineyard. All right? Jesus then identifies who the the vine is, the true vine. And who is that? Who is it? Yes, it's it's himself. Now, what is interesting, if you look down at verse 1, he doesn't just say that he is the vine. What does he say he is? The true vine. And brothers and sisters, I know you study the Bible and you love the Bible. When you look at that statement, you have to ask the question, why does he say true vine instead of just the vine? I mean, doesn't doesn't the picture and doesn't the, the metaphor hold up by simply saying, I'm the vine? So when we ask the question, why does he say that he's the true vine? He must be implying that there are what? False vines. False vines. And then so we have to ask the question, well, who, who would be the false vine? What kind of false vines are out there? That's what I want to ask you to do. Hold your place in John chapter 15. But would you turn back to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 5. The Old Testament is full of the illustration of vines and branches and vineyards. And generally speaking, vines, branches, vineyards, grapes all have to do with peace and prosperity and God's blessing upon God's people. But when the vineyard is not fruitful, there's also this concept of judgment and failure. So in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah writing, the revelation of the Lord from heaven. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. Can you imagine this, brothers and sisters? Someone who says, I'm going to plant a vineyard. I'm going to build a vat. We're going to have grapes. We're going to make wine. We're going to celebrate. It's going to be a great and glorious venture. But look at the end of verse 2. It yielded not good grapes, but wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? That is, useless grapes. 
And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain. No rain on it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is the testimony of the failure of Israel but to be the proper vineyard and to be the proper vine, to be the proper fruit-bearing vineyard that they were supposed to be. They were failures. Turn to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm 80. Now this is not only tragic, but this is also beautiful. God had put His stamp upon the people Israel. They were to be a vineyard. They were to be vines that produced branches, that produced great fruit, that produced celebration and plenty and wholeness and peace and prosperity. And yet they had failed in that. And again, Psalm chapter 80, a psalm of Asaph, the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt, a vine. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. That's a beautiful picture. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and, and, and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock of your right hand planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Verse 17, look at it. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So the psalmist sees and identifies Israel as an unfruitful vineyard and an unhelpful, non-nutrient-giving vine and cries out for restoration and cries out for wholeness and peace and prosperity and massive fruit-bearing and he calls upon the Lord to send His own Son to provide the fruit-bearing that Israel needs to prosper. And then you fast forward a few hundred years and Jesus sits with His disciples, 11 of them, and He makes the statement, I, I am the true vine. I am the fulfillment of the calling 
of Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 and Jeremiah 2 and Isaiah 27 and so forth and so on. Jesus is the true vine. He is the real thing. He is life. He gives life. He has life flowing in him and through him. He is on our behalf what we could not be on our own. Church, just so that we don't get lost in an exegetical analysis world, this is the reality, is that we should be vines. We should be life-giving and life-producing. We should be fruitful. We should be joyful. We should be loving. We should be serving. We should be in and of ourselves because Adam and Eve were created in perfection and in all wholeness. We should be fruit-bearing vines, and we aren't. But Jesus comes, and He does what we can't do. And He provides the life that we can't provide for ourselves. He is the true vine. And we should praise Him for it. Now, in the, in the story, the parallels continue. So Jesus is the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. The next correlation that He makes is the fruitful branches. The fruitful branches. Now, He also talks about the fruitless branches. And we'll talk about the fruitful branches first because it will help us understand the fruitless branches maybe a little easier. But who, who are the, the, the fruitful branches? The way I have described it is genuine disciples who demonstrate spiritual fruit. Genuine disciples who demonstrate spiritual fruit. You could call it even the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how much that helps you. It may not help you a lot because it still is in that figurative kind of imagery type of language. And so I want to put some handles on this so that we can understand really what a fruit-bearing genuine disciple demonstrates. And the first thing that we really read about in Scripture and the primary thing that a fruit-bearing, genuine disciple demonstrates is the fruit of repentance. Repentance. John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, and Paul himself primarily focus on repentance and actual repentance, which is a turning your back on sin and self and turning your face and your heart toward God. And, and then ultimately bearing the fruits of repentance. But it's saying, I don't want sin. I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to prioritize my glory. But, but I want to turn from that because I'm sorry for that. I don't even like that pursuit. I, I actually hate that pursuit because I realize how self-centered and idolatrous that it really is. And so I turn my back on that now. And I turn my face and my heart toward Jesus who is my true vine. And I want to have Complete change of mind and heart and attitude and action toward Him. The fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. Second, the fruit of faith. The fruit of faith. And, and, and I believe that as we tease this fruit out, what we need to understand is that it is certainly basic faith. The fruit of faith in, in Jesus. Just say, I'm going to trust Him and not myself. I'm going to believe in His work and not my own work. I'm going to, I'm going to put all my eggs in His basket. I, I, I'm going to believe in Him completely. But it's also this faith of believing Christ for every aspect of your life. That is a major fruit of faith as you see it played out in the New Testament. 
And what I mean by that is, church, is that we can, we can in a sense, believe and have faith in the gospel, but we then don't let that faith govern and guide our decision-making and our lifestyle and our attitudes and our, and our, and our work because we just trust in ourselves and we have faith in ourselves. And as we see it teased out in the New Testament, faith, like bold faith, big faith, praying faith, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, an attitude. I think that would be the third fruit. A Holy Spirit-driven attitude would be a fruit, a spiritual fruit. And, and I mean that by Galatians 5. Because Paul clearly says, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Like, those are actually demonstrations of spiritual fruit. Those are attitudes that a person who is fruit-bearing has. Has a disposition of love and affection for people. Has a constant inner delight of the soul that's based not on good circumstances, but on a good Savior. That's what joy is. Peace. It is the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. It's knowing and believing that God is wise and good and big and governs over your life so that you don't worry and fret and have a fullness of anxiety because you demonstrate an attitude of peace because of what He's done for you at the cross. And we could go through the other six as well. But what we're saying is is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated in an attitude that the Holy Spirit gives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit that Jesus is talking about here. It's also the fruit of generosity. The fruit of generosity. Paul talks about how the Macedonian church the Philippian church had borne the fruit that was so good in his life because they gave and they gave, not only to him, but also to the church down in Jerusalem when they were in need. And he says, "You, your fruits have been so good in my life and in the lives of the saints in Jerusalem. If you are a fruit-bearing branch, you are a generous branch. You are a, a Holy Spirit attitude branch. You are an actually repenting branch. You are a full of faith, believing in God branch. And you're also, you have the fruit of, of purity. Purity. You could call it integrity if you wanted to. But Paul actually talks about the fruits of righteousness being born out in the, in the churches of Jesus Christ that he had planted and that he had seek to water and cultivate. He calls it the fruit of righteousness in Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. And what is that? That is the fruit of a life that's given over to the priorities of God. I mean, things like speaking the truth. Things like being honest, having an honest life not being a hypocrite, letting your word stand, not stealing but giving, not lying but speaking the truth, not pursuing your, your, 
your own self, but pursuing the good of others. All of those kinds of things, a, a, a pure life, a life that is given over toward God to say, I am going to live a pure, righteous life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He talks about the fruit of speech to the Ephesians. He talks about the fruit of gospel winsomeness. I'm just trying to help you understand that this is not just metaphorical language for us to to try to just say, well, I I think I'm a fruit, I think I'm a fruit-bearing branch, I think I'm a fruit-bearing Christian, I think I'm a a genuine disciple. And and I'm and I'm saying you probably are, because I know, I know you. I know you, I love you, I appreciate you, I'm blessed by you. But I will also say, you can also look and say, do I truly repent? Am I full of faith? Do I bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit attitude? Do I I prioritize purity in my life? Do I prioritize generosity in my life? Do I demonstrate these things? Do I have a gospel winsomeness so that more fruit, more people come into the kingdom, or at least they get to hear about the kingdom in hopes that they come to the kingdom through my life and through my prayers and through my words? Do I demonstrate that? Because that is a fruitful branch. Well, the opposite of that is a fruitless branch. Those are counterfeit disciples who demonstrate the works of the flesh. Those are counterfeit disciples who demonstrate the works of the flesh. And there are a couple of little things in our text today that that we might be uh, tripped up by or confused by. And if you look down at verse 2, That's one of them. In verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then ultimately, the fruitless branch that's taken away, if you look down at verse 6, they are thrown away and into the fire, and they're ultimately burned. Okay? So, what is kind of the initial thought of, well, what's the... There's kind of a little bit of a question here. And what is the question? He says, every branch, what? In me. In me. And so you get this this idea that maybe there are possibly disciples, like Christians, uh, believers, who who stop bearing fruit or or maybe never bore fruit, who just says, you know what, they're they're not cutting it. They're not cutting it at all. I, I, I put them into the fold. They're not cutting it. So I'm going to cut them off and I'm going to get rid of them. They're, they're losing their salvation here. But that's why context is so important when we understand, when we're trying to understand Scripture. Context is absolutely critical because there is somebody who has just left them and who is no longer in their presence. Who is that? Judas. Judas. Now, if, if, if somebody would have asked um, one of the disciples or, or, or anybody else who kind of followed around Jesus, they said, well, how many really close followers does he have? How, how many disciples does this rabbi have? They would have said 12. And they would have said, they would have named them off. And Judas Iscariot would have been one of them. And, and he had outward demonstrations of of being an actual disciple. He, he, he probably healed some people who were sick or slayed some demons out of people because he had gone out in twos just like all the other 11 had when Jesus had charged them and commissioned them to go and preach the gospel in the various towns. He had demonstrated works. He had followed Jesus for three years. I mean, he was attached to the vine. 
But Jesus calls him the son of perdition. And he says that it would have been better, better for him if he had never been born. Why? Because he is somebody who was attached to the vine but never received the nutrients of the vine and the life-giving the life-giving love of the vine. He never received it. He never absorbed it. He never appreciated it. He, he hung on and He was there, but He did not receive it. And, and this is Jesus' point, is that you can attach yourself to Jesus. You can, you can be a part of the people of Jesus. You can make the claims of faith in Jesus. But if you do not bear fruit, then you are demonstrating one reality. You don't attach yourself and abide in the life giving nature of the true vine, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not saying you can lose your salvation. Jesus is saying that if you are a fruit-bearing branch, then you're somebody who has received the nutrients of the vine. And if you haven't and you bear no fruit, then there's not something wrong with the vine. There's something wrong with you. You will not receive the love and the grace, and the mercy, and the power of the vine itself, namely Jesus. Okay, now, church, let's think right here. Let's think. What is a fruitless branch? What are the demonstrations of a fruitless branch? If the, if the, fruit, if the fruitful branch bears the fruit of repentance, what does a fruitless branch bear if he, if he or she attaches himself to the church and to the people of Jesus, like claims to say, oh yes, I'm part of the vine. If, if, he, doesn't, if he doesn't demonstrate repentance, what does he demonstrate? What? Sure, an evil spirit, absolutely. Um, but with that being the reality, you're probably not going to see like Judas Iscariot. People weren't walking around and saying, oh man, that guy is just brutal. You know, for three years they were like, oh, that dude is so evil. That's not what it, way it was, was it? He was evil. He was a son of perdition, like you say. But he demonstrated not repentance, what the Bible calls godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians, sin, uh, 2 Corinthians 7 actually um, compares the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And that's the kind of sorrow that fake believers experience. Hey, think about Judas himself. Once he realized what he had done, church, once he realized the gravity of his betrayal, what were Judas' actions after that? He took that money, those 30 pieces of silver, and what did he do with it? Did he go buy a new house or a new donkey? No, what did he do? He threw it back into the temple, and then he went and committed suicide. And you say, wow, that was repentance. No, that wasn't repentance. That was worldly sorrow. That was a self-centered sorrow that says, I'm still not going to bow down to Jesus, but I do feel bad about my actions, and so I've got to do something about that. I'll tell you, you're, if someone is attached um, to the vine, like actually attached, but not bearing fruit, one of the things is, is they don't fully repent. They may apologize. They may say, I'm sorry. They may say, I'm sorry that you were offended by my actions. I'm, I'm sorry that you were hurt by what I did. But they don't go all the way to godly repentance, kneeling before God, pouring out confession and seeking forgiveness, not only from God, but for those they hurt. So it's worldly sorrow. 
And, and, and if there is the fruitful vine and the fruitful branches is this, this big faith, this trusting of God, then what is it in a, in a fruitless branch? I would say it's fickle faith. It's fickle faith. It's, it's faith that's really contingent on circumstances. It's contingent on, on whether or not I'm being blessed. I had the opportunity last night to go and speak to uh, 12 um, leaders, high school leaders, athletes, um, just south of Birmingham at this unique camp. And two of these leaders um, actually came to me afterwards and said, uh, we want to become Christians. We want to be living for the glory of God and not the glory of ourselves. And I said, well, how have you been living? And they, they both said, we believe in God, but basically we just use God to get what we wanted whenever we felt like we needed him instead of worshiped him and bowed down to him and lived for his glory. Well, now, that's an identification. They were crossing over from fickle faith into real faith. Fickle faith is a faith that doesn't abide in the vine but only tries to reach up to the vine when they feel like they need him. What other kind of of demonstrations do we have of, of fruitlessness? Well, instead of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it's fleshly attitude. In Galatians 5, listen to this. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fruitless branches, even though they possess to, they profess belonging to Christ and they attach themselves with the people of Christ inside their lives and in ways that they can demonstrate without being seen as much, they will have envy and jealousy and strife and anger and fits of rage and sexual immorality that are all part and parcel to who they are depending on the circumstances in which they find themselves. That's a fruitless branch. That's a branch that says, I belong to Christ, but instead of belonging to Christ, they actually are just loosely attached to Him because they bear no fruit that Christ provides. We see greed and lust and selfishness are all demonstrations of fruitless works of the flesh from counterfeit disciples. Let's look at two more aspects of this picture here. So we've seen the vine dresser, we've seen the true vine, we've seen the fruitful branches, we've seen the fruitless branches. What else do we see? We see pruning. We see pruning. Um, What is the pruning here? It is the Father's wise, loving, often painful work in a genuine disciple's heart and life that makes him more fruitful and more joyful. It is the Father's wise, loving, often painful work in a genuine disciple's heart and life that will make him a more fruitful and a more joyful person. That's what pruning is. It's sanctification. God takes out his knife And he prunes us. 
He cuts sin out of our lives. He cuts useless and wasteful actions and habits out of our lives so that we can bear more spiritual fruit. You say, but what, what does pruning look like? What does, how, how does that happen? And what kind of things does pruning be? Well, there, there are a myriad of things, but if we think about it, church, God will use sickness in this way. Hardship, suffering for your your testimony of Christ, conflict in your marriage, failure in your profession. He'll use a variety of means in order to get at the pruning process. He'll use grief and disappointment and and. And, and all kinds of means that, that say, I am going to prune you so that I can make you better and more fruitful and more joyful in me. Now, the irony about this is, is um, if you're like me, you want to be a fruitful disciple. You do. You want to bear a lot of fruit. You, you want righteousness to be your characteristic. You want purity to be who you are. You want love and generosity. You, you want to, be, you want to uh, bless people with your words and your actions. And you want to be selfless and you want to encourage. You want that. But the way that God often does that is painful. It hurts. I mean, the times that I have grown the most in my life to become more fruit-bearing are the times in my life where I have experienced the most pain. And the fact is, is I don't really like experiencing that pain. It's difficult. It's challenging. You kind of lose your equilibrium a little bit. You feel frail and fragile. But it's in those moments, whether it's sickness, conflict, loss of a job, financial struggle, difficulty in the family, or whatever it is, as we press into the vine and trust in Him and take in the nutrients that He provides is when we will experience the greatest fruit-bearing of our lives. And so, that is something that should give us hope in the midst of our struggles and give us concrete faith in the midst of our difficulties to know what God is going to do in us and through us on the other side. Now, there's not only pruning that takes place in this vineyard, there's also purging. There's also purging. There's, there's removal. And what is this? What is this purging, this, this, this taking away, this cutting off, this throwing into the fire? This is the Father's intentional, eternal judgment of counterfeit disciples who claim Christ with their public profession and church affiliation, but don't abide in His love or bear spiritual fruit for His glory. This is the Father's intentional, eternal judgment of counterfeit disciples. And I know that probably a lot does not have to be said here. 
because Jesus says it for us. But the sad reality is that many people claim Christ, go to church, hang out with the people of God, but are fruitless professors of Christ who will, unless they change, unless they truly repent and exercise true faith in Jesus Christ, will be gathered up and experience eternal judgment in the lake of fire for an eternity. May God save anyone that's in this building right now from that peril by having trust and faith in Jesus. Okay. I want to finally just end with some personal implications. Personal implications here. So we've had the vivid picture. We've had the kind of the spiritual connections. And so... Here's the implication. Jesus is the true vine. He's the true life-giving vine who, produce, who produces increasing fruit and fullness of joy to all disciples who abide in His love. That would be the big idea, so I'll repeat it. Jesus is the true life-giving vine who produces increasing fruit and fullness of joy. Increasing fruit and fullness of joy to all disciples who abide, who abide in His love. And so this, this is the key, church. If you're asking, what is God calling me to do from this passage? What am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to know? What am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to do in this? If you look down at the passage again, verse 4, abide in me. Verse 4 unless it abides in the vine. Verse 4, unless you abide in me. Verse 5, whoever abides in me. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Verse 9, abide in my love. Verse 10, abide in my love. Verse 10, abide in His love. Over 10 times, or 10 times, Jesus uses this verb, abide. Minno, it means to remain, to dwell in, to live in, to settle down in and make your home there. God, if you don't hear anything else, listen to me. If you want to be a fruitful, joyful, obedient Christian, then do this one thing. Abide in the love of Jesus. Rest in the love of Jesus. Settle down into the love of Jesus and remain with Him. Open your heart to Him. Open your mind to Him. Love Him. Enjoy Him. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean, read His Word. Meditate on His Word. Memorize His Word. Enjoy His Word. Sit under the preaching of His Word. Be amongst the teaching of His Word. Pray back to Him the truths of His Word. And learn about Him. Listen to Him. Talk to Him. Spend time with Him. Go on walks in which you are reading from Him and talking back to Him. But 
Whatever you do, rest in Jesus. Get to know Him. Get to love Him. Understand the nuanced nature of His love and service on your behalf. Abide in the love of Jesus. Hang out with Jesus. I mean, I don't know what that looks like in your life. I really don't. I, I, I know that there are basic things because he talks about abiding in his word and loving his word, even in this passage. But this is what I know for me. For me, I and my family can testify to this, but Jamie or I, generally within 10 minutes of us waking up in the morning, we're going to be playing some Christian station on Pandora as we're just starting our day. We're going to listen to a lot of Christ-exalting, gospel-centered music as we start our day. We're going to take those fighter verses on that app that John Piper has provided, and we're going to read the Word, and we're going to talk about it, and we might sit at the table, and we might recite it, or just listen to the guy say it over and over and over in order to get it into our mind, and ultimately it'll get down into our heart. And we're going to read, and we're going to study, we're going to meditate, we're going to enjoy, we're going to talk to Him after He talks to us. That's what we're going to do, because we feel like we're going to fall more in love with Jesus, and abide in His love as we hear from Him, and enjoy Him, and utter back to Him in song and in prayer who He is and what He's done and how He's working in our lives. I don't know if that just sounds too practical for you or if it's just way off base from from where you're at, but I, I just know this. This is what I know. We we make sacrifices for and we work for what we delight in. We make sacrifices for and we work for what we delight in. And what's interesting is that as we delight and as we work, we have an increasing delight and we have an increasing satisfaction in whatever that is. So, if you're a boat guy and you love boats and you love sailing and you love being on the water, and you dream about being on the water, and you dream about a certain kind of boat so that you can sail a certain kind of way, a certain kind of distance on a certain kind of day, then you're going to work in order to achieve that. You're going to sacrifice in order to get that. You're going to labor in order to experience that. You're going to save vacation days in order to achieve that. You're going to work for what you delight in. And I will tell you, I will tell you, it is no different in the Christian life. If you want to abide in the vine, you got to work in order to delight in Jesus because it's one, it will not happen spontaneously. It will not happen like spontaneous combustion that all of a sudden, here you are 25 years after you became a Christian and you just delight in the Lord, you love Him, you receive His life-giving nutrients every day and you're the happiest, most joyful Christian in all the world even though you've suffered a lot. That will not happen. But what will happen if you commit yourself to abiding in the vine Listening, learning, memorizing, meditating, going on walks, um, singing, praying, fellowshipping. You can look up 25 years from now, have suffered a lot, endured a lot, but on the other side, you are a joyful, obedient, massively fruit-bearing Christian, and you look around you, and there is fruit to show for the life that you've lived as you've enjoyed Jesus for that time. I want to ask you to bow your head in in prayer right now.
I just want to I want to ask you to pray right now in line with, with really just these three encouragements to you. Um, are you letting the Father prune you? I'm serious here. Are you letting the Father prune you? And by that I mean, are you going through trouble? Do you have a, a, a problem relationship? Do you have a conflict in your life? Do you have a failure in your life? Well, if you let the Father prune you, if you accept that and run to Him and ask for help and trust Him for grace and apply spiritual realities to your problem... That would be you letting the Father prune you. But if you resist, if you give, it, if you give God the Heisman, the stiff arm, just say, I'm going to deal with this in my own way. I'm going to do this. I'm just going to ball my fist up and I'm going to white knuckle through this thing until it's over. That's not letting the Father prune you. Let the Father prune you. And if you're willing to let Him prune you, would you just ask Him to give you the willingness and the commitment and the faith to let the Father prune you? Second, I want you to make some kind of commitment to abide in the vine more consistently, more, more joyfully. And we talk a lot about reading and meditating and memorizing and enjoying and, and talking back to God, His Word. But I just want to ask you right now, just straight up, how, how much are you really enjoying fellowship with Jesus? How much time are you really investing in abiding in Jesus? What kind of sacrifices are you truly making? What kind of work are you truly doing in order to spend time resting in Jesus? Learning from Jesus. Seeing Jesus on the pages of Scripture and getting excited about who the Savior is and what He's done and who He is and how He works not only on the pages of Scripture but in your life. Like, how thrilled are you getting on a regular basis about Jesus? Man, I want to call you. You are wasting your time if you're not abiding in Jesus. And I want to ask you, would you pray? Would you plead with the Lord to give you both the desire and the resolve to abide in Jesus. And finally, I want to ask you if you would ask the Lord to help you prioritize fruit bearing. Ask the Lord to help you prioritize fruit bearing. Because you see... The way this thing works is 
abiding in Christ leads to obedience to Christ and bearing fruit for Christ. And as you spend time with the Lord and you do your Bible studies and you teach your lessons and you enjoy fellowship with other people who follow Jesus, that should turn into fruit-bearing, repentance and faith and attitude and speech and generosity and kindness and love. And I just want to ask you, would you just ask the Lord to help you prioritize the bearing of spiritual fruit in your life so that this church can be a vineyard full of fruit where we can celebrate the goodness and the grace and the glory of our vine dresser and the true vine to whom we're connected. I ask you to make those prayers in earnest for the glory of the Father and for the sake of Christ the Lord.